please open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 4. My name is Craig Brewer. I'm glad to be with you this morning. And I'm going to be on Nehemiah 4. Now it came about that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. He spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him, and he said, Even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquities and let not their sin be blotted out before you, for they have demoralized the builders. So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Now when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause a disturbance in it. But we prayed to our God, and because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, today's message is really one about spiritual warfare, and I entitled it The Enemy's Plan because what we'll see in today's message is God's mission but also enemy resistance. And whenever God's people do God's work in God's way, there will be opposition. There will always be those that will come against what God wants to do. And for those of you that haven't been here so far where we've been in Nehemiah, I want to give you a little bit of backstory, kind of leading us up to chapter 4. In the days of Nehemiah, the Jews were back in the land, back in Jerusalem, and, and they had been freed from Babylon. They've been now in the land about a hundred years. And Nehemiah was serving as a cupbearer in Persia in a place called Susa, which was the capital at that time, and he was a, a cupbearer to the king. Now, this is a kind of a privileged position, and it was his job to protect the king from being poisoned or drugged, and and so the king and Nehemiah had developed a close relationship. In chapter 1, we saw that Nehemiah's brother, Hanani, had come from Jerusalem and had shared with Nehemiah that there were problems in Jerusalem. The walls were still torn down, the gates had been burned with fire, the people were suffering. Nehemiah begins to mourn, he begins to fast and pray that God might use him to work on the walls to restore the city. Now, you can never approach a Persian king and tell them what what your mind is, what you want to do. So, he just prays, and for four months, he fasts and prays. And in chapter 2, God begins to move on the heart of Artaxerxes, the king. And the king asks Nehemiah, why are you sad? And then Nehemiah openly shares. First, though, he prays, doesn't he? (laughs) Then he shares. And he shares what God has laid on his heart, that if God might use him to restore the city of Jerusalem. And sure enough, Artaxerxes allows him to go. A little later in chapter 2, we see that Nehemiah, he arrives there in Jerusalem, and the first three days, he checks out the, the disrepair of the walls of the city, and then he calls the city together, the officials and the people, and he shares God's vision, what God has laid on his heart. Chapter 3, the people get busy. And they start to work. And that was what we looked at last time. But when they started to work, we had our first indication of opposition. Chapter 4, where we'll be today, we're going to find whenever God's people do God's work, there's going to be resistance. There's going to be a fight. There's going to be opposition. And so in today's message, we'll see spiritual warfare at the ground level. The enemies of God are going to use two tactics that we'll see today to try to discourage and stop the work on the walls. But we'll see from Nehemiah how we fight back, how we take a stand, how we continue on. 
So the question is, so what are the enemy's tactics and how do we respond as God's people? First thing, the enemy ridicules God's work and His people, but we must continue on. The enemy, his first line of attack is always to bring ridicule. You might call it criticism. He wants to criticize the work of God. He wants to criticize the people of God. I want you to look at verse 1 again. It says, Now it came about that when Sanballat, or Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he, he became furious and very angry, and he mocked the Jews. To mock, to bring criticism, to ridicule. Now before I, I deal with the verses here, verses 1 through 6, I, I want to give you um, really who our enemies are. There are three enemies that we face. The first one, this might surprise you, it's you. <laughs> it's your own sinful flesh. It's the flesh. Now, the sinful flesh, this is our inner inclination to sin. And so some of you right now are thinking, wait a minute, Pastor Rob, I'm born again. I mean, I've been transformed. I'm different. I'm a Christian. That means I no longer have sin in my flesh, right? Wrong. And the enemy knows that. Our flesh has an inclination to sin. Now, if you are a Christian, if you've received Jesus Christ, you've been given the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit now resides in us. But also, there's our sinful flesh, and so we've been given a new heart by God for the things of God. But that new nature, it resides in sinful flesh. And for the rest of our lives as believers, we are in a fight to honor God, to honor our new nature, to honor the Holy Spirit within us, to honor God's Word, and not submit to the flesh. Now, Paul, speaking to believers in Galatia, this is what he says in Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8. He says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And so there's a battle between the old flesh, if you want to put it that way, and the new Spirit. There's a battle raging within us. The Holy Spirit saying, honor God, follow God's Word. And our flesh saying, I want to do things my way. And this battle is with us till we take our last breath. And let me tell you something. You determine who will reign. You determine whom you will serve. Because God has given you the Holy Spirit and God has given you the ability to say no to sin, yes to God. And the question that we really have to answer is, will we obey? Will we honor the Lord with our life, with our mind? Paul put it like this in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. He says, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God and has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. He's saying right there to lay aside the old nature and to instead live into your new nature. Put it aside, put on, take off the old, put on the new. Now, before you were a Christian, before you received Christ, before you had the Holy Spirit, you could not say no to sin. It rained. Literally, the Bible speaks about it as if you were a slave to sin, it tells us in Romans. But now, as children of God, we've been freed from that slavery, freed from the shackles. We have the ability to say no to sin, yes to God. But guys, it's a fight, and we must resist. We must continue on with the Lord. Paul the Apostle puts it like this in Romans 6, verse 11 and 12. He says, even so, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies 
so that you may obey its lusts. I am telling you right up front, victory is possible in Christ. Absolutely. You're a new creation in Christ. This new heart from the Holy Spirit resides in you but it resides in sinful flesh. So you must fight. You must resist. You must deny the flesh and honor Christ. Our first enemy is the flesh, the sinful flesh. The second enemy is the world or the world system. This is the unhealthy social environment opposed to the things of God. And the Bible teaches that the world system, its way of doing things, are influenced and controlled by Satan. Now, John, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, puts it like this. He says, We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So the devil is considered the ruler of this age. And when Jesus walked on this earth, he, he talked about two different kingdoms. He talked about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of God is believers in Christ. You have been given the Spirit of God, and wherever you go, the Spirit of God goes with you. You literally bring the Spirit of God into every situation that you're involved in. The kingdom of this world. He's speaking about the things of this world, and Satan is the one who controls and influences the dynamics of this world. Hey, just take a brief look at the news. After about two articles, I'm saying, yep. Satan's definitely involved in that one. Now, Jesus said this in John chapter 12, verse 31, now judgment is upon the world, and now the ruler of this world will be cast out. One day, Satan will be cast out, and his rule and his reign will be over, but that day is not yet. He still has control of the things of this world. One day, this world will be brought back into alignment of God's will. So we have two enemies so far, the sinful flesh, the evil world. The third thing is Satan himself and his demons. Now, Satan is a powerful being, and he's looking for whom he can destroy or devour. And he has what we might call a demon host that does his bidding. And Satan has been been given by God control of this world. And you're saying, wait a minute, I don't understand that. Remember when Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, He was baptized, and then He goes into the wilderness and He's tempted. One of the temptations that Satan used was He offered Him the kingdoms of the world. Well, how could He do that? Because He had control of those kingdoms, and He still has that control. Now, you cannot be possessed by Satan he cannot indwell you because he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. You have the Holy Spirit within you, but boy, can you be influenced. And boy, can he get, get a hold in areas of your life. The people of God belong to God. But sometimes we live like those who are of the world. And we know that ultimate victory over Satan was won for us on the cross of Christ. One day, we will rule and reign with Christ. We will co-reign. But right now, in this, this day and age, Satan is still considered the ruler of this age. As a matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, he's called the God of this age. Now, he's not a God. He's actually a fallen angel, and the demons are fallen angels. And so we know that ultimate victory over Satan was won for people on the cross. One day, we will rule and reign. One day, Satan will be judged. And he's at work here in Nehemiah. He's behind the scenes. He's influencing Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem and these people we see. And the enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, these are in opposition to God's work and God's people. And so now that we know who the enemies are, let's look at the first assault, what the enemy does. First, he uses ridicule. Look at verse 1 again. It says, now it came about when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry, and he mocked the Jews. Strong's concordance, the Hebrew word for mock, is to ridicule, to criticize, to bring scorn upon. 
What prompted the opposition is that the work was continuing. What prompted them to get upset and and to bring criticism, to bring ridicule, was that the people were progressing in the work on the wall. Now, you would think, you kind of have a ragtag group of Jews here. I mean, they're not, they're not powerful, they're kind of weak, they don't have a lot, but man, they're progressing. And you would think, man, when you look at the work, with admiration, I'd say, wow, because this is a huge job. But this is also God's work. And the enemy does not like it when God's work is progressing. And it's not unusual for the enemies of God to insult the people of God. It makes me think about David and Goliath, right? Goliath... He brings out insults against David when he comes out with just a sling and some stones. And how about our own Lord, Jesus Christ? The the Jews mocked him in the trial, and the people mocked him when he was hanging on the cross, dying for their sin. Not uncommon. It's a common tactic. And in Hebrews 11, it tells us that the people of God throughout centuries will be mocked. Warren Wiersbe says this, he says, when the enemy laughs at what God's people are doing, it's usually a sign that God is going to bless His people. Sanballat and his friends could only see the physical. And they thought that the Jews were weak and inconsequential. They they thought, what are these? They're feeble. What they couldn't see is that God was behind the work. And they have a powerful God. And so they bring bring ridicule. Look at verses 2 and 3 says, he spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble and even the burned ones? And now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him and he said, even what they were building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break down their stone wall. So Sanballat and Tobiah, they bring ridicule against God's people. And what they do, they do it in four areas. First, they ridicule the workers. They call them feeble, feeble Jews. This means withered or miserable. It's like, if, I don't know, it's kind of like me. Whenever I plant, a, plant something, it seems to just wither. <laughs> I don't have a green thumb. It dies. They're saying, oh, they're going to give up. They're going to die out. It's not, there's no strength there. And guys, it's true. They were weak. But oh, God is strong. It makes me think of the cross, doesn't it? Because God loves to use the things that are weak to confound the wise. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It is the power of God. And so Sam, Ballad, and friends, they think it's foolishness because they cannot see that it is God behind him. There's a second attack. They ridicule the work itself. And they ask three questions. First they say, are they going to restore it for themselves in verse 2? And I think the whole group just begins to laugh at that. All these feeble Jews, they think they can do this. They're so weak. They're never going to make this happen. And then they say, can they offer sacrifices? They're thinking, hey, hey, prayer is powerless. Their God has nothing. This is actually an attack against God himself. This is blasphemy. They say he's not strong enough to continue to work to help them. And can they finish in the day? This suggests that the Jews don't understand how difficult the task is. By the way, this wall was built to completion in only 52 days. It is an amazing feat, and God did an amazing work. So he ridicules the workers. They ridicule the work. And third, Sam Ballad, he ridicules the actual materials they're using. Understand that these are limestone stones, they're large stones, and when limestone gets burnt, it actually kind of crumbles, and so they're thinking, well, it's been destroyed with fire, there's no way they're going to find enough in the rubble to rebuild the walls, but guys, there was so much rubble. If you've ever been to Israel, you'll see it, there's so many rocks. There's more than enough materials. And by the way, they have God behind them to help them. And there's a fourth attack, and it's Tobiah. He actually ridicules the final product. He says, even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break down the stone walls. They can only see from a human point of view. They can't see how powerful their God is. They don't understand the great faith that their leader has, Nehemiah, and that he has faith in a great and powerful God. 
We need to understand that the enemy's plan is always to cause doubt, discouragement. So why? So we'll stop the work. So we'll stop moving forward for Christ's sake. So we'll give up and say, I just can't do that. I'm too tired. I can't make it. Whatever. He wants to stop you. That is his goal. He cannot have you. He cannot have your soul. But boy, he can do damage in your life. Satan has lost the battle for your soul, so he whispers criticism to cause you to doubt that God is powerful enough or strong enough to move forward in in the grace of God. And the reason he does this is he wants you to doubt the goodness and the power of God. And he wants to gain an influence in your life. And the issue this morning is will you let him? Do you give him a foothold? He wants to stop your witness and your effectiveness in the kingdom of God. Now, as Christians, you cannot be demon-possessed. The Holy Spirit resides in you. And by the way, Satan is not God. He's not all-powerful. He doesn't know everything. He's not omnipresent where he is everywhere. And he cannot read your thoughts. However, he is one who uses influence, and he knows human beings, and he understands our weaknesses. And ultimately, what he wants to do is influence you. He ultimately wants to destroy your life, destroy your testimony, your effectiveness to spread the gospel. Now, Neil Anderson, he wrote a book entitled The Bondage Breaker. Because i got to tell you, when I, when I reference a book, that doesn't mean I agree with everything the author says, so please hear me up front. If I share a quote, it because it lines up with Scripture, and this one does, but I don't agree with everything that Neil Anderson has written. But this is what he said. He said, the fact that a Christian can be influenced to one degree or another by God, by the God of this world, is a New Testament given. If not, then why are we instructed to put on the whole armor of God and stand firm in Ephesians 6.10? And to resist the devil in James 4, 7. And what if we don't put on the armor and stand firm or assume the responsibility for what we think? And what if we fail to resist the devil? Then what? We are easy prey for the enemy of our souls. Now, Peter was speaking to believers. This is what he says in 1 Peter 5, 8. He says, be sober of spirit. Be on alert. For your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, Satan cannot have your soul, but boy, can he do damage to your life. And if you will listen to his lies and not trust in the Word of God and stand in faith, he gets a foothold. And you don't want him to have a foothold in your life. Now, again, he can't inhabit or possess a believer. I got to tell you, though, the unbeliever, the Bible says, is firmly held in his grasp and his control. Before believers... The act of giving in or allowing Satan to take away any amount of control in our life, it's referred to as giving ground, giving ground to him. This is found in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. This is what Paul writes to the church. He says, be angry and yet do not sin, and do not let sun go down on your anger, and here it is, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Another version puts it at, do not give a place to the devil. That word in the Greek for opportunity or place is the Greek word tapas. It's where in the English we get topography. It it talks about a specific spot or location. It talks about you giving in ground, an area of your life over, over to sin, which opens the door for the devil to get a hold, a foothold into your life. It's giving ground to him. Influence, an entrance, a voice into your life and your decisions. Satan wants to gain influence. And when we do not deal with sin in the power of the Holy Spirit, we open the door for control to Him. We've got to deal with our sin. We've got to think biblically. And we have to act in a way that honors Christ with our mind and with her bodies. Now, Clinton Arnold was a professor that I had at Talbot Seminary, and he wrote a book that's very helpful. It's entitled, Crucial Questions About Spiritual Warfare. This is what he said. 
He said it's likely that any sinful activity that the believer does not deal with by the power of the Spirit can be exploited by the devil and turned into a means of control over the believer's life. Therefore, Christians need to resist. For Paul, there is no middle ground. There is no nominal Christianity. Believers either resist the influence of the evil one who works through the flesh and the world, or they relinquish control of their lives to the power of darkness. And I want to take that step a little bit further. We have to fight and resist the enemy. We have to fight using the truth of God's Word. We do not want to allow the enemy a foothold into our life. Now, James 4, 7 says, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That means we resist the devil, we resist the world's ways, we resist our own flesh. Because when we give in to temptations, it not only reveals the weakness of our own flesh, but it opens up our lives to the actual influence of the enemy into our lives. I'm just telling you flat out, this is no joke. This is the real deal. And I deal with this all the time as a pastor. And it breaks my heart. You see a man or woman in the church, and they're being used by the Lord. And I'm talking effectively. A man leading his home, honoring Christ with his words and his actions. And then he gives in to his flesh. It might be pornography, it might be sex, it might be greed, it might be admiration of others. I don't know what it is, but all of a sudden, they stop coming to church for whatever reason, and the Satan has gotten a foothold into their light, and they start to drift, and next thing you know, you don't see him for a while. And what happens? Sometimes actual destruction comes into their life. Now, he may not get their soul, but I'll tell you, he wrecks havoc. And it may take years, and I do mean years, to find healing. Don't open that door. Don't give in to your flesh. Don't believe the stinking world. He is a liar. So how do we fight? Thank God for Nehemiah. Look at verses 4 through 6. Hear, O God, how we are despised. Return the reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in the land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity And let not their sin be blotted out before you, for they have demoralized the builders. So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Nehemiah did two significant things right here in response to opposition and ridicule. First, he prays, and then he persists on in the fight. He prays and he moves. He prays and he moves. That's what we got to do. First, we see in verses 4 and 5 that he, that he prays. And he prays, he goes to God and he talks to God about the ridicule that they're bringing against the people, about God himself. And guys, he sicks God on them. He says, God, you fight the fight. God, this isn't only ridicule about us, they're ridiculing you and your work. When I first read this, I kind of went, wow, this is really kind of different. I mean, whatever happened to forgive your enemies, right? Because he said, Lord, destroy them. Why does he do that? Because it's not just about them. These people are blaspheming God and his work. And he's saying, Lord, because of your own holiness, you fight that fight for me. Nehemiah, he doesn't try to fight them himself. No, he goes on his knees. He fights on his knees. And guys, that's where we got to fight the fight. We got to start right there. And you see this with him throughout all of Nehemiah. I mean, in chapter one, where do we find him first? He's on his knees asking for God's help, his provision. Chapter two, where do we find him? On his knees. Again, here, chapter four, on his knees. He understands that if a spiritual battle is going to be fought and won, it has to first be fought in prayer and much prayer. Lord, destroy the enemy for me. He's a man of prayer. I love what Chuck Swindoll said. He said, you are never more successful than when you're on your knees in prayer. The saint who advances on his knees need never retreat because prayer provides an invincible shield. And if you want wisdom, what are we called to do in James 1.5? We're, we're to pray and ask God for wisdom and he will liberally give us that. 
Before Nehemiah ever said a word to the critic, he prayed. And he said, Lord, you do the battle. You fight the fight. But there's a second thing. He continues on with the work. He resists, but he moves forward. That's amazing. When you look at verse 6, it says they continued with the work, and they literally, they build the wall to half its height. That's a two-and-a-half-mile wall. And it doesn't say how long it took them, but it was only 52 days to complete the project. This is probably somewhere around the halfway mark, 20 to 25 days. Because they prayed and they didn't give up. They continued on. You see, when somebody brings ridicule, they want to demoralize you. They want to stop you. They want to stop the work of God. But we fight on our knees in prayer, and then we don't stop. We don't believe the lies. Guys, we're His. We are the Lord's. We're His people. He loves us deeply. He's paid for our sin on the cross. We deal with it right there on the cross, and we move forward in faith and in His power. Now, I might be so passionate about this because I've seen this my whole Christian experience. Having been on the mission field, I experienced this firsthand. When Bill Foote and I were, were on the mission field, we were there about six months, and Karen and I and our family went to help Pastor Bill Foote. He had already been there over a year, and, and when we arrived, and, and after about six months, Mark, our church had a whopping one family. It's like one family after six months, and we were meeting in this little fellowship hall in a, in a little town center. And guys, profanity was the common language in the area that we lived in. We lived in kind of a lower income area. And whenever we would be going to church or doing any type of event, there were always these teenagers around cussing us out and literally ridiculing us for what we were doing. And I was getting so discouraged. And guys, the work was heavy and it was hard. And we were in a new country and all this stuff was hitting me. And I'm a fairly new Christian. And I didn't know what to do. And but Bill and I, we'd meet once a, five times a week, Monday through Friday, 6.30 in the morning. We'd pray together for the mission, for the ministry, for our families. I was getting tired, though. I didn't want to meet anymore at 6.30. I'll never forget, Bill and I meet, and this particular morning, he was so tired. I mean, he just looked wiped out. And I said, man, well, what's going on? You look really tired. Well, understand, right at that time, an opportunity had happened in the ministry. Bill had been contacted by a radio ministry. It was a digital radio thing that was just happening in Europe. And they offered him a spot on digital radio throughout Europe. But we had no digital messages. Everything was an analog. So that meant extra work. Had to buy special software. Had to figure out how to do it. He needed to learn how to cut it on digital format. And, and so he and I worked together on that. That doubled our workload. I mean, we were exhausted. And so this one morning, I'm saying, man, why are you so tired? He says, I've decided to tithe my sleep. I'm like, what? It was shocking. He said, well, I've just seen that, that, that the battle's on. And he said, and I've made a decision that the one thing I'm not going to give up is prayer. In fact, I'm going to double my effort. So I'm going to get up an extra hour early, and I'm going to pray through this difficult time of work to see if God will bless it. Guys, that's, I was like stunned. When the tough gets going... The tough start praying. And so I just joined him and said, okay, brother, I'm getting up too. And we prayed too. And no kidding, within a couple of months, the ministry just started to move. And God opened doors. And he did get that digital radio spot. And people did start coming to church. And, and a youth group started. And, and teenagers came to Christ. Because we prayed and we fought. So when ridicule comes, don't give up. That's the enemy's plan. That's not God's plan. First thing we see, the enemy ridicules God's work and His people, but we must continue on. Second thing, there's only two points. Praise the Lord. <laughs> the enemy intimidates. That's his second line of attack. Okay, if he ridicules you and you don't give in there, then he's going to step it up. He's going to bring the heat and he's going to try to intimidate you to cause you to fear to give up. He wants you to stop. Look at verses 7 through 9. It says, Now when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry, and all of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause a disturbance in it. But we prayed to our God, and because of them we set up a guard against them day and night. 
And so Samballot and, and his friends, they, they start to get very upset. And, and okay, okay, so the ridicule didn't work. And so what they do is they intensify it. Now they, they begin to intimidate the people. In chapter 2, we saw that there were three different people groups here. You had Samballot. He's known as a Horonite. He, that's actually a Samaritan. So he's the leader of the Samaritans. You have Tobiah. He is an Ammonite. And you have Geshem. He's the leader of the Arabs. But here in chapter 4, verse 7, there's another group that joined them the Ashdodites. Now, it's interesting. If you look on a map, the Ashdodites, they were along the Mediterranean coast between Joppa and Gaza. They were Philistines. And Israel had been at war with Philistines the moment they came into the land. And so if you look at a map and you look at the city of Jerusalem, they were surrounded to the north were the Samaritans, which is Sanballat. To the east were the Ammonites, which is Tobiah. To the south were the Arabs, which is Geshem. And now to the west, you had the Philistines, the Ashdodites. They wanted to intimidate God's people to stop the work. Now, it's interesting. It seems like as Christians, we have a hard time uniting together in a common cause. But I can tell you, the enemy has no problem coming against God's people and uniting. Because normally, these guys would all be enemies against each other. But instead, right now, oh my gosh, the Jews are getting a foothold. Let's attack them. That's what they want to do. And they wanted to, to plan a conspiracy. And they wanted to arrange a disturbance. And so often, God's enemies will come together and band together to, to fight against the work of God. It reminds me of Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2 says, Why are the nations in an upper and the people devising a vain thing? And the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. This is exactly a picture of Psalm 2 right here. If you look at verse 8, it says, All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance. I hope you understand that Satan has always been against the Jews. And the reason he's against the Jews, it is because through the Jews is how God revealed himself and his presence. It's through the Jews how God brought the Holy Scriptures to it. And it's through the Jews that he has brought us our living Savior, Jesus Christ. And God has always been against the Jews. And so he sets up this enemy. It's interesting, you also see our enemies here as well the flesh, the world, and the devil. You see the devil, if you will, kind of stoking their fleshly pride. They're losing control, and he's helping them to get upset and want to fight. You also see the ways of the world here, because the ways of the world is always power and control. But you also see God behind the scenes here, because he has a godly leader in Nehemiah. And it says that we prayed. Together, Nehemiah rallies the troops to fight. So what does Nehemiah do? When he's confronted with this overwhelming horde of enemies, same thing he did before. He fights in prayer. He fights on his knees. Look at verse 9. We prayed to our God. And because of them, we set a guard against them. Intensified opposition, intensified prayer. When the devil won't stop, we don't stop. We pray and we pray and we ask God to fight. But then, what does he do here? He takes practical action. He takes a stand against him, but then he moves and starts doing stuff. He sets up a guard. He doesn't let the enemy get a hold. It's practical. It's common sense. Hey, guys, I pray for my home. And I pray that the Lord will protect my home. But can I tell you something? I turn on the alarm, I close the windows and doors, and I lock them. I do both. If you need a job, you pray to God, God, I need a job. And then you do a resume, you put it on LinkedIn, you go to all the different sites, you call all your contacts. It's both. This is normal Christianity. This is how we fight. We keep moving forward. And spiritual warfare is real. And the enemy is real, but he's a sly dog. And he's a liar and the father of lies. But we must never forget that victory, hear me on this, victory is possible. In fact, it's offered to all in Christ. You can overcome. And I got to tell you, as a pastor, I'm concerned for our church. I'm concerned for you because I know in this congregation right now, some of you have already given the enemy a foothold in your life. You've already surrendered ground to him. 
For some of you, it could be uncontrolled anger and bitterness. You've got a heart that has turned sour and you're upset and you've upset your family, you've upset your loved ones, you upset those that know you. The enemy has a foothold. For others of you, it's an attitude adjustment that you need. You are sour. And instead of being grateful to the God of glory who has provided for you your whole life, you think you deserve more. And you play the blame game. You blame your past, you blame your childhood, you blame others, but you do not look at your own heart and the sourness of your own heart and confess it before a holy God. The enemy has a foothold. For some of you, it's pornography. This is the hidden sin in the church. And you've opened that door and the enemy has got in and it's turned into much more than just a part-time deal. It has you. It has a hook in you. I just read a statistic that 30% of all women now are watching pornography regularly. That blew my mind. For others of you, it's a substance abuse. It's just a joint. Give me a break, Pastor Rob. I mean, it's legal now. Come on. I only have a drink occasionally because it's, you know, acceptable. It's okay. And No, it's prescription drugs. The doctor told me I should take those drugs. But where you used to have control, it now controls you. And the enemy has gotten in. And he has a place in your life. For some of you, it's an emotional affair. You've opened your heart to another person. They're just a friend. No, it's more than a friendship. Matter of fact, for some of you, it's already moral failure. You're having sex outside of marriage. And you're using the word love instead of sin. And the devil's in. So what do you do? I'm going to take the remaining part of this message and I want to talk to you about freedom. I'm talking about fighting here, the real deal. Fighting the good fight because freedom is available for all of us who are in Christ. I read a helpful book. It's entitled Claiming Surrendered Brown Ground by Jim Logan. And it takes a biblical approach to finding freedom in Christ. And if you want to call it steps to freedom, let's call it that, steps to freedom. And the first step to freedom, if the enemy's got a foothold, a place in your life, is genuine repentance. Now, you might all say, well, yeah, I understand that. We're called to repent. I get that. No, I'm talking genuine repentance, real repentance. This means repenting before God and actually turning to Christ and not going back to your sin. A couple years back, a man called me on the phone and said, can I come and talk to you? I've got an issue. He wasn't from our church, never met this man. He came and met me in my office, and he walked in, and he says, hey, I have a pornography problem. And his wife had actually asked him to call me, and so he was there. And In fact, it was such a bad problem, he got caught at his office looking at pornography on the computer. They fired him. That was the day before. So he's sitting in my office, and, I, and I, he goes, I want to be free. He says, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, and I want to be free from pornography. And I said, well, one of the first things you want to do is repent. Are you willing to do that? He says, yes, I'm willing to repent. And I said, so I'm going to lead you in a prayer for repentance. He says, great. And I said, but before I do that, first I want you to know, I need you to buy this software, and I want you to put it on every one of your computers and your phone, and myself and your wife is going to have complete access to your life. And we're going to see every site that you go through, everything that you look at. Are you willing to do that? No kidding. The guy stood up and said, no way. And he walked out of my office. He didn't want to genuinely repent. He wanted it to look like repentance. So the first step to freedom is genuine repentance. There's a second step here. It's taking back surrendered ground from the enemy. Now, this is going to sound a little bit like repentance, but it's more specific This is an open declaration of your sin. There's an area in your life, the devil has a foothold, you know where your weakness is, it's got you, and you need to confess this openly before the Lord by name. Say, this is the one Lord. Matter of fact, I want you to put just an initial on the top of your bulletin. As I'm going through these steps, I think you should just make a little note to yourself, is there something that's got you today? You don't have to write it out afraid your neighbor might see it. 
But I want you to know it. I want you to be able to look at something, to be able to see. It could just be the first initial. It could be the last initial. I don't care. But for you, you know what it is. Because you're going to confess that. And you're going to claim the cross. Because that's where our sins have been laid. And that's where freedom, freedom is found. You genuinely repent. You confess your sin openly by name. And you claim the victory in Christ those two are done immediately when you discover that you've got, the enemy's got a hold on you. And then there's an ongoing way to fight. The third thing is you tear down the enemy's strongholds. The, the author of this book calls them fortresses of lies. The devil's a liar. He's the father of lies. And he's lying to you that you cannot have victory. You can have victory. Well, how do we have victory? You fight the good fight in your mind. You trust in the Scriptures. You put the Scripture in and you fight against it based on the Word of God. You take in the Bible. And guys, we are influenced by what we take in. If all that you are influenced by is the TV, the news, secular music, then you're going to be negatively influenced away from Christ. But if you put in the Word of God, you can fight the good fight. And you focus on things found in Philippians 4.8. Take Take upon whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good of repute. If there's any excellence and if there's anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. It could be set your mind on these things. It's an ongoing fight. So three things, genuine repentance, take back surrendered ground, tear down the strongholds, the lies. There is victory available with truth. And the fourth one, is take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The enemy's a liar. He brings in lies. He can't read your mind, but boy, he can make suggestions. You are worthless. You will never find victory in him. That is a lie. Because he that is in us is so much greater than he that's in the world. And you fight with truth. Again, meditate on the things that are honorable and true and right. Memorize God's scriptures. Take that thought captive Stop it. Stop that thought. And then focus on the things of God. Amen? Now, the enemy, he's a liar. His ultimate goal is to render you helpless. First, he does this through ridicule. If that doesn't stop you, then he's going to intimidate you. What are we to do? Pray. Pray. Never stop praying. And then what? Continue on. Stand against it and fight. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the word of God. I thank you for the example we see here in Nehemiah. I thank you for his leadership. I thank you that he turns to you, Lord, by faith. And he understands where the victory is won on our knees. But he doesn't stop. He keeps moving on to bring you glory. I pray now, Lord, as we come before you in prayer, that you would honor this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Can I please have you stand? I want to give us a practical application this morning. I don't know if you wrote a little initial on your bulletin, or you just have it in your mind. But if you believe that there's an area of weakness in your life, and maybe even more so than a weakness, that the devil actually has a foothold, he's gotten in, I want to offer you an opportunity this morning to genuinely repent before God. I believe this is perfect timing for our church. I believe this is where we are at as a church. And then after you've genuinely repented, I want you to take back surrendered ground. In your mind, you don't have to do this out loud. But I want you to call out that sin before God. I want you to bring it to the foot of the cross in your mind and leave it there. He's fought the battle. That's where faith remains. Amen? So let's bow our heads. Whatever that sin is that you've thought about in your mind, I'm going to lead you in a prayer of repentance. You can repeat after me in, in your heart. 
Oh, Father, forgive me. I recognize, Lord, I have sinned against you. Lord, I understand that I have not trusted you. That I have fed my own flesh. I have listened to the lies. Forgive me, Lord. Lord, I lay down this sin. I turn from it. I repent. I turn to you, Lord Jesus. Lord, I take back that surrendered ground. I bring this sin before you and to your cross. I trust you anew, fresh today. I understand, Lord, you've died for all my sins. And Lord, you paid for this sin as well. And now I ask for victory, Lord. Help me to continue to fight the good fight. Help me to trust you when that desire, that temptation comes. Help me to take the way of escape and to honor you with my mind and with my life. In Jesus' name, amen.